The Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel has the lowest altitude of any freshwater lake in the world. It's actually just over 200 meters below sea level. The only lake which lies lower than Galilee is the Dead Sea to the south. But as many of you know, the water there is far from fresh, hence its name. The River Jordan flows into Galilee from the north and then continues its journey south, terminating in the Dead Sea. Lying at such a low level, you won't be surprised to hear that Galilee is surrounded by hills. And the story we're considering this evening takes place just after that event which we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. So you don't need a degree in geography to work out that Jesus has been up on one of the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee and has now come down and arrived on its northern shoreline at the town of Capernaum. This was the place that Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, who all worked on the lake as fishermen, called home. It was their hometown. And Jesus made Capernaum his hometown for a while for much of his ministry. It was his headquarters, if you like, um, during much of the time that he spent up in the northern part of Israel, uh, ministering and teaching and healing. And it's likely, therefore, that even if Jesus had never met this Roman centurion, he may at least have known of him. He was a wealthy Roman officer, this centurion, and it seems that he's shown a great deal of benevolence towards the Jews, seemingly has some sympathy and affinities with them, and he would have been a very notable resident of that town. And we see in this story um, three main groups of people. There's the Jewish elders who come and speak to Jesus. There's the centurion himself. And then there's the servant who is sick. And so we're going to focus on those three groups. <clears throat> and as we do so, we'll learn much about the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So the story begins with the Jewish elders who basically come with a message, this man is worthy of Christ's compassion. And we'll start here because they provide a great contrast with the centurion himself and it's a contrast that's extremely helpful. Roman centurions were powerful and influential men. They were fairly senior officers in the Roman army and also had civil powers at a local level. Israel, of course, was occupied by Rome. Rome had made it part of their empire. And so this centurion would have had a significant deal of 
deal of authority in the town of Capernaum. Now on that basis, he had the ability to make people's lives a misery. But it seems that this centurion is not in that bracket at all. It seems that the Jewish elders and leaders have a considerable amount of respect for him. They speak of the good that he's done for their town and for their nation. Now, of course, it could be that they're just wanting to stay in his good books. But the way Luke writes, it comes across that they do actually consider him to be worthy of Christ's help. Presumably, he really has built them a synagogue. Luke tells us at the start of his gospel that he has meticulously researched all the material that he's included. And a centurion funding a local synagogue in the town where four of the disciples live, well, that's a fact that can pretty easily be verified. And Luke tells us that this centurion has a genuine concern for a much-loved servant. In the way that many people do judge these things, this centurion does indeed seem to be what people will call a good man. On that basis, the elders argue, Jesus should show kindness to him. He deserves it, after all. And of course, people have always thought that way. And that's exactly how people think today. This is how people decide whether or not God should look upon them favourably. And most people conclude that if there is such a God, then why would he not look upon me favourably? I'm really not that bad a person. And I can point to others and say they are not a bad person either. I can show you the evidence of the good things that we've done. I could write you a list. And because of that, God should be good to me because I'm worthy of his goodness. And we can tend to think that I or others who I can point to, we don't deserve to suffer misfortune. We don't deserve to have bad things happen to us. Why is it that it seems that the bad things always happen to the good people? We've just had this uh, very sad news of this police officer down in London who was killed just the other day. And so many people are coming forward and what do you hear them all saying? You hear them all saying, what a good man. And in many ways he was, in the eyes of the world he was. God is obliged to be good to all of us because we're worth it. This is how the world thinks. This is how the world likes to think of itself. 
This is how I like to think of me. And if you're honest, this is how you like to think of you. We all like to think we've done well. In his memoirs, Ronald Reagan, uh, before he became President of the United States, was Governor of California. And he was giving a speech in Mexico City. And when he'd finished speaking, he sat down and there was a little ripple of very muted applause and he was a little embarrassed. Another man got up to speak and spoke with great flourish in Spanish, which Reagan didn't understand. And this man was being enthusiastically applauded after every sentence he spoke. Well, to try and hide his embarrassment and to uh, act with some degree of grace, Ronald Reagan started clapping louder and longer than everyone else after every sentence that this man spoke until the US ambassador sat at his side, leaned over and whispered in his ear, Ron, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's translating your speech. Well, we can all get things wrong like that, but applauding yourself never goes down too well, really. And yet we think it's okay to do that before God. Are you tempted to do that before him? To stand before the almighty and holy God of heaven and applaud yourself before him, pleading your own goodness and worthiness? Do you think that you can come to church and expect God to look upon you favorably and listen to your prayers? because you're a good person. You've notched up enough good deeds, or at least avoided notching up any really bad ones. Therefore, you expect God to give you a, a good and favorable hearing. That was the attitude of these Jewish elders who came to Jesus. This is a good man. He's worthy of your favor. He's earned it. He deserves it. Well, this event is going to teach us that God does not think like that. God does not see things like that. That is not the attitude which cuts any ice with God. And it's brought home to us in the contrast that is provided by the centurion. Because in contrast to the elders who come to Jesus saying that this man is worthy of your compassion, the centurion says, I am not worthy of anything from Christ. Not even to have him walk through my front door and be in my home. So this notable man does not share the view of the elders who he sent on his behalf. 
And presumably that wasn't really the kind of message he'd wanted them to say. The centurion actually was dependent upon the mercy of Christ. He doesn't feel able to approach Jesus for himself. He's relying upon Christ's mercy. And here is a man who's been able to recognize that there is something quite unique and remarkable about this man, Jesus. So unique and so remarkable that despite his own high office and rank and status, he's suddenly aware of only one thing. Just how unworthy he is in contrast to this man, Jesus. Who am I to cause Jesus the trouble of taking time to walk over here? Who am I that I could ask him to step into my home and to grace me with his presence? I remember reading a story about a university professor He was a professor at the John Hopkins University in the United States, a very prestigious university. And he was one of its leading professors of physics. His name was Henry Augustus Rowland. And he was once called to a trial as an expert witness. And during cross-examination, one of the lawyers demanded to know What are your qualifications as an expert witness in this case? Now, normally, Henry Rowland was a very modest and unassuming man. But he replied very quietly, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under consideration. Sometime later, a friend who knew him well expressed surprise at his uncharacteristic answer. It wasn't like him to speak about himself like that. Roland answered, well, what else could I do? I was under oath to tell the truth. Well, like Professor Roland, we might occasionally find ourselves in a situation when we have to acknowledge our own earthly merits or achievements. Many of you, I think, dread that section in a job application or interview when you're expected to sell yourself. You're expected to flaunt all of your strengths and aptitudes and explain why this company would be crazy not to employ you. I think most of us actually, thankfully, tend to shy away from that. But that kind of thing is never going to get us anywhere before a holy God who declares that even the best of our good deeds are as filth in his eyes. Read through the Old Testament and many of those Uh, men and women who we consider to be great heroes of the faith. Many of them are marked out by their own sense of unworthiness before God. Really? 
Me? From the elders comes this message. See who this centurion is and look at what he's done. But from the centurion, I am no one and I've done nothing. It's difficult to know for certain what the centurion's spiritual state is, but he demonstrates something that Jesus strongly commends. He has assured and unwavering faith in Christ. He thinks like this, if men obey me as a centurion, how much more will my servant's disease and illness flee away at the command of Christ? Jesus, you only need to say the word and I know all will be well. Now many people used to flock to Jesus, jostling in the crowd to see him and demanding that he perform more miracles. In most, there was no faith, only frivolity. The thrill of another spectacle was what they craved. But this Roman centurion feels so unworthy, he can't even imagine himself being in the presence of Christ. Nor would he even dare to suppose that his home is good enough for the King of Kings. Yet he does believe that Christ is able and willing to heal his servant. And so he asks in faith, Jesus, please, just say the word. And that's the kind of heart that Jesus responds to. That's the faith that God requires and imparts that we would hear his word and believe and that we would act upon the word of God in active trust and faith. In many ways, everything you need to know about Jesus is here in this passage. I think we can safely assume that the centurion knew far less about Jesus than we do through what we have recorded in the Bible. And yet he had sufficient to put his trust in Christ. J.C. Ryle says this, Have we the word of Christ's promises? Then let us rest on it and fear nothing. Let us not doubt that every word that Christ has spoken shall be made good. The word of Christ is a sure foundation. He that leans upon it shall never be confounded. Believers shall all be found pardoned, justified and glorified at the last day. Jesus says so and so it shall be done. So the great promises of Christ are promises that we can be sure of. That he's the bread of life and to feed on him you'll never hunger and never thirst. 
to believe on him, you will have everlasting life. Great promises like these are not reserved or given to those who think they deserve it. None of us could ever be thought of as sufficiently worthy to receive these things. All of us have a dread disease from which we need to be cleansed and pardoned. The disease of sin, which is a terminal condition. Men and women will never be able to cure it or rid themselves of it. But there is one to whom we can turn in hope and faith for healing, like the centurion did that day. Jesus said, he who comes to me, he who believes. And so you are to do as the centurion did, humble yourself before Christ. Come as you are. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what do we see in Christ this day? Well, we see the power and the authority and the compassion of one who is God. And it's a great demonstration of Christ's deity. Jesus hasn't seen the servant. What's his condition? What's his, what's his illness? Imagine if I went to the, the GP tomorrow morning. Um, if you can get to see one nowadays, uh, morning doctor, um, my wife's not feeling too well and I'd like, I'd like you to give her some medicine please to make her better. Well, my GP is at least going to begin to ask what the problem is and what the symptoms are so that some kind of diagnosis can be made. Hopefully, the GP would say, well actually, don't you think you should bring your wife in so that I can examine her and find out what's wrong? Because they need to be able to make an accurate diagnosis first, don't they? They need to find out what the problem is before they can even attempt to put the problem right. They need to be able to see what's wrong. No doctor can cure a patient that they've not, they haven't seen or about whom they have no information. But you see, Jesus demonstrates here that he is the mighty God. He is the one who is sovereign over all things, who knows all things, who sees all things, who knows the condition of every man and woman and boy and girl on the face of this world. He knows every weakness, every sin, every failing, every thought, every anxiety and worry. And he has every answer to all of your needs. And we're shown in this very simple story that we are to abandon all trust in ourselves and any thoughts that we deserve that which Christ can give and rely totally and without reservation on the person of Christ in his compassion and in his mercy and in his grace. And trust in the authority and the promises of his word. Come to him for healing and cleansing like the centurion did. 
believing in your heart that he will do it. And you can be made right with God. And before I close this evening, let me say a few words about the servant. Because he is the man who benefits from another man's faith. What a blessed position this servant is in, being in the household of a man who has such faith in Christ. What would his future have been were it not for the centurion's trust in Christ? You can view that from several angles, I suppose. Those of us who are Christians, let us realise the amazing good that we can bring into the lives of others if we truly live as men and women of faith. What an example we can set to others. What love and grace we can show to others. What display of faith we can live out in front of others. What hope in Christ it is that we have that we can share with others. What truths about Christ we can declare to others. What claims of the gospel we can lay before others if we live out our faith before them. And here's another thing. Let's not be quick to remove ourselves from such blessings. Here's something else that J.C. Ryle wrote with this passage in mind. He said this, Often, far too often, a Christian parent will hastily place his child in a position where their soul can get no good for the sake of mere worldly advantage. Often, far too often, a Christian employee will seek a new place where religion is not valued for the sake of a little more wages. These things ought not to be so. In all our moves, our first thought should be the interest of our souls. In all our changes of location, our chief desire should be to be connected with godly people. In all our scheming and planning for ourselves and for our children, one question should ever be uppermost in our minds. What shall it profit me to gain the whole world but to lose our souls? Good situations, as often they are called, are often godless situations and ruin those who take them. Do others benefit from your faith in Christ? Do you use your faith for the good of others. And then finally, those of you who are not Christians, but are regularly in the presence of Christians, perhaps a Christian home, maybe spending regular time with friends who are Christians, 
perhaps regularly attending a place of worship, shoulder to shoulder with Christians. Well, you, like the servant, are facing death because you're lost and condemned in your sins before God, just as we all are. Unlike the servant, however, no amount of faith that others have will save you. You too must put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that only in him is there forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. Others cannot have this faith for you. You must trust in Christ. Will you not humble yourself before the Saviour as the centurion did? Will you not trust in him and believe in him as the centurion did? Will you not ask of him for that which you could never do for yourself? Will you not be made well by the one who alone has the power to forgive sins?